Well, good morning, church, here in this room in the sanctuary and live stream. <clears throat> and uh, happy Father's Day. Let's, let's, uh, we had the privilege in the first service, early service, of dedicating two beautiful babies to the Lord. And so thankful for our children, children, our heritage from the Lord. So, so thankful, so thankful. Uh, so let's, let's pray real quickly. Lord, I would just uh, thank you for worship. We thank you that the family is your idea. We thank you that the reasons for marriage involve producing children, as well as companionship and sexual fulfillment, and that is your good design. And we thank you for, for these beautiful children that are among us. And we ask that you'd make us fathers diligent and protective and loving and kind and like Jesus. I pray you make us tender and strong, let us be men of deep conviction in a culture that does not hold to many convictions. So thank you for this day. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day the portion of the spirit that we need to live and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been dealing with the theme of helping broken people to treasure Jesus and the focal passage has been Psalm 51. And my theme has been that only broken people run to the cross. Only broken people treasure Jesus. Only people understand their sin and their need go to the cross in salvation. And only people understand their need run to the cross on a daily basis. There's a parable told by Jesus in Luke 18 that is very well known. It's a story that goes like this. Two men, Jesus says, went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee, of course, belonged to a party that was working feverishly to earn the favor of God and they did all of these things and they kept all these rules. And the tax collector, conversely, was a minion of the occupational forces. The tax collector gathered money for his own pockets and for the Romans who had conquered the land and the tax collector who were Jewish, deeply hated. And so they go into the temple, the Pharisee stands up and Jesus says he prays about himself. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, so forth and so on. I'm not like this tax collector. I, I give a tenth of all that I get to you, I fast twice a week. I am working feverishly hard and I'm very proud of myself. And the tax collector sat in the corner, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he said, God, have mercy upon me, a broken man or a sinner. And Jesus says that the tax collector went home right with God and not the Pharisee, which really blew the minds of everybody listening. And so broken, only broken people treasure Jesus. I gave you the quote several weeks now from a man named H. Richard Niebuhr who said regarding the church in America some 50 years ago that a God without wrath or judgment is bringing a people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without the cross. And what he was saying tongue in cheek is that unless you understand sin and separation, you will never 
glory in the cross. So only broken people treasure Jesus. And we come to Psalm 51, and in Psalm 51, David has just been confronted by horrible sin. He had been involved in adultery. He had been involved in really the murder of several men to kill one man. He had lied about his adultery and the woman that he had impregnated. And he was exposed as a liar, as an adulterer, as a murderer. And when the charade was up, he wrote Psalm 51 and he begins this psalm by pleading for mercy. He says, oh God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me of my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin. Wash me thoroughly. And then he talks about the fact, he says, he says as, I, as I consider the character of God, he says, behold, you delight. You delight in truth in the inward man. You, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And David says, you know, in my inward being, in my secret heart, it's really bad. It's really bad. My outward behavior is really bad, but inside is really, really bad. And so he pleads for the cleansing of the sacrificial system that foresignifies the work of Jesus on the cross. And he says, cleanse me with the sacrificial system. And then he says this. It's an amazing statement. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. It's an amazing statement. In my sin, because my sins are forgiven by the work of the Lamb of God, who prefigures the coming of Jesus, let me hear joy and gladness. And then he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then he gives a prayer. It's five quick arrow prayers to God. And we'll deal with the fifth today. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, which means, God, you've got to do it. I pray that prayer a lot. Something will hit me. I say, God, create, create in me a clean heart. My mind is going the wrong place. And, and renew a right spirit within me. He says, renew an unwavering spirit. David says, I remember the way it used to be. I used to be dead on for you, God. But now I'm not. I've slipped. He says, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We would say, let me grieve not your spirit that you've given to me when I believed in Jesus. Because when I grieve your spirit, I can't hear from you clearly. I can't live effectively and my joy is gone. Not even half-hearted, unconfessed sin, half-hearted obedience. And, and, and fourthly, he says, he says, God, restore to me the, the joy of your salvation. The joy. And David says, the joy's gone. I've been disobedient. It's It's gone. I gave you a quote by Jonathan Edwards that said, God created the world and his creatures that he might communicate his happiness to them. I love that quote. The joy. Now, how's your joy? And then fifthly, he says, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And the word, word uphold means to prop me up. It means just hold me up. And a willing spirit is a, is a ready spirit, a, a spirit that is ready to obey, a, re, a spirit that's quick to obey it is to be battle ready in the fight to be battle ready lord sustain me with the willing spirit sustain me with this willing spirit this battle ready spirit and we were in isaiah excuse me psalm 40 last week we talked about how to develop a willing spirit we'll be there again this week so if you have your your bibles or your electronic devices turn to psalm 40 and in Psalm 40 is a passage about how to develop a willing spirit. In the background of this psalm, we don't know all the details, but David is once again in trouble. <laughs> he, 
He, he says this in, in verse 11. He says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And then he says this, listen. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities, my sins, have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. So David says, I'm once again in the pit because of my sin. I've blown it again. He says, my, my sins are, are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And he says this, and I think this is incredibly important. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. And I said last week that, that, that obedience under the authority of Scripture and the Lordship of Jesus brings clarity of sight. But sin darkens our understanding. Sin you know, obfuscates the truth. It kind of clouds it over. So David says, I cannot see. So not only has this sin overtake him, there are people out to do him in. Verse 14, he says, come and haste to help me, Lord. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. David says, not only have I sinned, but there are people who are really out to get me. And so in the midst of that, he gives us his psalm on how to develop a, a willing spirit. And it's a beautiful psalm. And I said last week, the one way we develop a willing spirit is to rejoice and remember. David starts off the psalm by saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's what we do. We wait patiently. We wait. We look. We, we expect. We, we trust. We say, God, come. God, teach. And then, then he says, and when I do, as I do those things, these four things, I remember. Number one, he says, God, you, you inclined to me and heard my cry. You, you listened. You stooped down and you listened to me. He said, you, you drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry clay. Now, I just I said, do you, do you remember the times in your life where God has just lifted you up from the pit of destruction, that he's kept you safe. He's brought you out of the miry clay. And then he says, and you put me upon a rock gave me a place to stand, and you made my steps secure. You gave me a path. And then the fourth thing he says is you, you, you put a new song in my mouth. And I said, I said you know, are, are we rejoicing in the Lord? If you don't have a willing spirit, you rejoice in your salvation. You rejoice in the goodness of the cross. And so we remember and rejoice. And today I'm going to talk about verses 4 and 5. To, to develop a, a willing spirit, we must be people who understand foundational truths. Verse 4, foundational truth number one is you trust in, you look to the Lord, you put your hope in Him as you don't do so with other people or other groups. He says, blessed is the man. Every time you see the word blessed in the Bible, you can put a slash and write happy beside it too. It means happy, blessed. Blessed or happy is the man who makes the Lord Jehovah his trust. Happy is the man who looks to the Lord with confidence and focuses with hope upon the reality of God. Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord. Just, 
There are so many verses in the Bible on trust. Let me give you a few of them. Psalm 20, verse 7 and 8. Some people trust in chariots, and some people trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We rise and stand strong, but they fall. Ultimate trust. We trust in the Lord. They trust in munitions, or they trust in money, or they trust in this, or they trust in that. What's the object of your trust? Proverbs 3, verse 5 and following, very well-known passage. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. So, so, trust in the Lord. And you don't lean on your own understanding. You don't, you don't always go to your understanding. If possible, you go to the Scripture and the principles of Scripture. And say, Lord, open my eyes to how I should live. Establish me, make my steps secure. Or Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, you will keep him in perfect peace. I want that. Perfect peace whose mind is fixed upon your character because he trusts in you. You want to have peace? Then meditate upon the wonderful, benevolent, kind character of the triune God. So this, this whole issue of trust. Now, now, a part of trusting is intentionally not walking in ways that are contrary to the character of God. He says this, blessed is a man who makes the Lord his trust and who does not turn to the proud. That's the only time this word is used in the Hebrew Bible, this, this particular word for proud, this translated proud, it means to, who speaks out arrogantly against God, who just discounts God. So, so you trust in the word and you don't run for wisdom to people who speak against the character of God to those who go astray after a lie or falsehood. Uh, blessed is this this, this man who trusts and then turns from that. He doesn't go astray after a lie. Now, let, let me talk to you this morning about you know, this. Coming to faith. As I've observed people through the years, when they come to faith in Christ, especially if they're a little bit older, it's a sequential movement. It, it, it's, we, we live in a culture that either discounts God or denies God. So there are many people who are out there who say, well, I'm a soft atheist. I'm not, I, I, I guess I'm an atheist or maybe I'm an agnostic. Maybe there's a God, but I don't know if he can be defined. I don't know if he exists. So that's where a lot of people start. And then I believe the Bible teaches they, they get quiet and they get in touch with the internal witness that God has put, placed in their heart. And they look at creation. I, I was in the mountains this week, and I just thought, there must be 50 variations of green in the Smoky Mountains, just on this little patch right here. It's amazing. And, and then you go, I see the order of the universe. I see the fact that the way the world is put together, and, and it's, it is amazing. So, so I really, there's got to be a creative mind or energy that made this. Many people, we had some baby dedications I mentioned in the last worship service, and many people, when they, when they see these beautiful babies born, they go, wow. I'll never forget the statement by a guy named Whitaker Chambers who was trained to be a communist. He was living in Baltimore, Maryland, and he was steeped in atheism, and 
he said he had a little baby girl and she was eating oatmeal and he said I was watching her eat oatmeal and as she was eating oatmeal my my gaze was fixed upon her because I loved her with all my heart and then I started looking at her ear and he said this thought came into my mind and I tried to push it out but I could not he said an impersonal plus time plus chance could never make something as delicate and beautiful as my daughter's ear and he said, that was the unraveling of my atheism when I, I slowly became a man who believed in God, then I came to believe in Jesus. So anyway, so, so you, you go from that to you believe a great creator God. And then when that happens, you say, okay, this is a great creator God. And you start dealing with the different claims about the character of God. If, if you, you study Buddhism or Hinduism, two of the world's great religions, and they kind of sort of say that there is a God, but he or she cannot be defined definitively. I mean, there are different manifestations, but really cannot be defined. It's more of a philosophy of living. Or if you're, you study Islam, they say that there is a great God who's the creator God, but he's not personally involved in our lives, and, and he's kind of distant and austere, and he's out there. And then you turn to the Christian God, and the Christian God, the story blows your mind. The Christian God says there is a triune God who is eternal, has no beginning, has no end. And in the fullness of time, this God became a baby. And he was born in the supernatural way. And he lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross for our sins. And he rose victorious over death. He's a personal God. And he lives in heaven. He's going to call history to a close. And so, and so you, you show these things. And then the Lord works your life. And you commit your way to the God whose name is Jesus. And when you do that, your world starts coming together, and, and all of a sudden, you live under the authority of Christ and his apostles. And this book becomes a lamp to your path and a guide, and it's the rock upon which you stand that makes your steps secure. So you, you go to the scripture. So that, that's how it holds together. Now, I go through that to make a couple of statements. So the first is this. Therefore, we trust in the Lord, and we do not run after people who mock his standards and who believe lies. Um, this month is Pride Month. I'm sure you've heard it and seen it. And while we affirm the uniqueness of every man, woman, and boy and girl, and while we affirm that all people are made in the image of God, no matter what they believe and how they live, they're worthy of respect and Christian love. They are filled with the dignity of God and we want to affirm and love and befriend all types of people and have them into our homes and open our lives to them and ask God to use us to show them the truth of the gospel. While we believe all of those things and we shout from the rooftops that everyone deserves dignity because they're made in the image of God, we cannot, if we are believers and we stand under the authority of this book, I want you to understand this, we cannot affirm and celebrate marriage between people of the same same sex we, we just can't because the bible is very clear that marriage is between a man and a woman and not only that but sexual intimacy is for marriage and is for joy and is for having children and is for companionship marriage is for all those things so so we celebrate marriage as god intended it because god's way leads to human flourishing to go against god's ways god's way leads to disorder and chaos and the inability to seize and so we we can't celebrate we cannot for example celebrate 
the transgender movement. We, we, we can't. We affirm the dignity of people, but, but we cannot, with clear conscience, say that, that, that your, your choice of gender is plasticity. It's one way maybe today, one way next year. No, no gender, we believe, is a gift of the good creation from a benevolent God. We love the fact that God made us as soul and body. We affirm the physical. We love the physical as believers. We love beauty and we love music and we love paintings and we love poetry. We should because God is the author of beauty. But God is also the author of making us male and female. So we, we can't celebrate something that God has said is, is not right. And so this is just, I want you to understand that. And if you're here and you... And you're just kind of dealing with, is there really a God? And we're so glad you're here. Continue to worship and think. And we pray God will open your eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. But, but, but you see, there, there's, a, there's a little book. It's uh, written in 1957 by a guy named James Michener. You, some of you read his books. This is a, a historical account of what happened in Hungary in 1956. In 1956, the very brave people of Hungary, a nation of about, at that time, 8 million, now 10 million, Hungary wanted to throw off the yoke of Soviet dominance. And so they rose up in the streets of Budapest and they said, we are free. We declare our freedom from the Soviet Union. And uh, the Soviets rolled in their tanks and killed many people and destroyed buildings and arrested people and put people to death. And it was a horror. It was called the, the, the Hungarian Uprising of 1956. But in the midst of that, there was this little bridge over a very small river called the Andal River. And... Uh, James Mishner stood there and interviewed people that came across the bridge. And countless people came across the Andal River before the Soviets built an iron wall basically around Hungary. And they went, from, they went from Hungary to Austria. They went from totalitarianism to freedom with only the clothes on their back and maybe a satchel under their arm. They left everything behind. It's an amazing story. And as he interviewed these people, he said that they told this story. They said, they said for years, for years we've been dealing with this. And they said, as parents, and fathers, these fathers, they said, listen to this. As, as parents, when our children got to be a certain age, we had to tell them the truth. And by telling them the truth, if our children reported us to the authorities, we would go to prison. Because they've been told since they were able to hear that, that the state was supreme, that there was no God, that a group of men determined what was right and wrong, and that they should live for the glory of totalitarian collectivism. And said, so we would close the door, draw the shades, and sit them down, and we would say to them, everything you've been taught in school in this regard is a lie. There is a God. He made the heavens and the earth. And this God has spoken. And this God's will is supreme, not the state. And the end goal of man is to understand and live life in accord with this God and not in accord with the oligarchy that resides in a small room in Moscow called the Politburo. And so we did it time after time. I, I thought for us, don't be unaware of the devil's schemes. Moms and dads, sometimes we need to sit down with our children and look at them and say, you live in a culture of incredible materialism. A man's life does not consist of his degrees. It does not consist of his income. It doesn't consist of where he lives. But it consists in knowing and loving the living God. In fact, Jesus said, 
whoever longs for life on his own terms will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you want to find life, you walk in the way of Jesus. See, Jesus is enough. We've been convulsed for several months now with something called the critical race theory or intersectionality, and it's largely, I think, at times misunderstood and misrepresented, but in, in just in a five-second nutshell, critical race theory is out of Germany, a school, a Frankfurt School of Thought in Germany, and, and they basically say, says that either you're oppressed or you're an oppressor, and you need to find your identification either in your ethnicity, your gender, your, your political leanings, or some type of meta-narrative that's not part of the cultural meta-narrative, but, but, but you've got to say, I, I find my worth in this, this, or this. Listen, it's a lie. Jesus is enough. Paul wrote a radical statement in Galatians 3 where he says, in Jesus there's neither slave nor free, Greek nor barbarian, male nor female. We are all one in Jesus. And I say, Jesus is enough. I don't need to find my significance in my ethnicity, in my socioeconomic background, in the school I went to, in my profession and my credentialism in that profession, I find my identity in Jesus. Everything outside of that is a misappropriation of the truth and sometimes it's just a blatant lie. So, so that's what we're to do. That's who we are to be. And then he says in the next verse from Psalm 40, he says verse 5, this is an incredible verse. You have multiplied, O Lord. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us, none can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. He says, he says you have multiplied your wondrous deeds, which speaks of the past, and your thoughts toward us, which speaks of the present and the future. None can, be, none can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet there are more than can be told. Here's David in the point of need, in the point of being pursued, in the point of being overwhelmed by his sin. And he says, behold, the glory and goodness of the Father. And it's an amazing statement. So the wondrous deeds, the past actions of what God has done in your life or done among us corporately. The Old Testament scholar I respect very much says that this is an unspeakable and joyful obligation on the part of God's people to speak it out, to speak it out. And as I go through this psalm, I've just been overwhelmed. Listen, he says in verse nine, I, I have told the glad news of deliverance to the great congregation. Next, he says, I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Time after time. And I've seen one of my applications to say to you in the next two weeks. Just talk to somebody who's outside the Christian faith or outside of the church about the good things God has done in your life. And the blessings he's brought to you. That's what we are to be doing. So I was coming back or driving to Tennessee to the, our convention recently, and I uh, passed a historical marker that said, exit here to see the home of Alvin C. York. And I thought about Sergeant York, and I'd read a book about him a couple of years ago, a very good biography. Sergeant York was a man 
who was raised in Tennessee in a very poor environment. He was one of 11 children. He went to school for nine months, and then his dad, who was a blacksmith, died, and Sergeant York, Alvin York, uh, dropped out of school to help raise his brothers and his sisters. He was uh, kind of a riotous young man, but in his early 20s, he became a believer in Jesus, and he was known for his godliness. And Alvin York, uh, when World War I hit, he was drafted, and he really struggled with declaring himself to be a conscientious objector. He said, I don't know if I can do this, but decided to go ahead and join the Army, and he did. And then as we went over to that conflict in 1917, he was on the front lines, and his captain asked him and two of his comrades to do something to try to lessen the murderous fire from a machine gun nest by the Germans. And Sergeant or Corporal York at that time went around and they attacked the machine gun nest and they, they took 20, 35 machine guns, they killed 25 Germans and took 132 Germans as POWs. And so they marched 132 Germans into camp with just three of them. It's just an amazing story. It's a great movie starring Gary Cooper entitled Sergeant York. Anyway, so I go by, I go by this place called the home of Alvin C. York, and, and I thought that every historical marker, listen to me, every historical marker is a statement saying you have an obligation to understand and know history, whether it's in this country or another country, it's to carry on the tradition of, in this country, freedom and dignity. And I thought, but how much more, how much more significant is it as a believer to stop and say, I'm going to concentrate on the wondrous deeds you have done throughout history. I'm going to concentrate on what you have done. In Joshua chapter 4, there's a statement that the children of Israel have crossed over from in the promised land on the dry seabed. The Jordan River is rolled back. And the Lord says to Moses, Moses, you get... 12 men get 12 big rocks from the, from the riverbed and bring it over here and make a monument, make, make a monument to the Lord your God so that in the future when your children say, why is that monument here? Then the fathers, okay, the fathers, the, the fathers will say, the Lord dried up the Jordan River and we were able to make an incredible monument to testify to his grace here and at the Red Sea. And you will teach generation after generation after generation. We have an incredible, unspeakable, joyful obligation to do that, to remember and be glad, to remember and realize that we are carrying the torch for our time to pass on to the coming generation. I've got on my calendar, to my calendar, I've got certain days circled in red. When I stop and I think about some of my heroes who have died. A couple weeks ago on June the 9th, I had a big red mark around June 9th, and it was the death of William Carey. William Carey was a missionary, died in 1834 in Calcutta, India. William Carey died at the age of 73, and he goes to... He goes to England in 19, or 1793, and he's there for 41 years, and he never comes home. He takes his wife and three children. His wife had just had a baby that's a five-month voyage filled with horrors. They get there. A couple years later, they bury their five-year-old son, Peter. His wife loses her mind. She's for 12 years. He has to nurse her and 
confine her, then put him in, into an asylum, and he just labors and labors and labors. She dies. He remarries, has a wonderful marriage for 13 years. His second wife dies. He dies later in the age of 73. Never left England. Worked there seven years before his first convert. Never, ever, ever gave up. And Calcutta without an air condition would be worse than Charleston without an air condition. It's a very difficult environment. And I, I thought of Carrie's life, and I said, Lord, as I reflect upon William Carey, help me carry the torch. Help, help me to understand the tender mercies and, and the magnificent, glorious goodness of the Lord and the wondrous deeds you have done, and let me speak of them. Church, speak of them. And the second thing he says is, I, I'm, I'm a person, I'm, I am remembering and I'm treasuring the multiple glorious thoughts you have toward us. I was thinking about this in Isaiah 46. talks about, he says, Isaiah 46, Isaiah says, you have to carry idols. You have to carry them. He says, but, he says but, but listen to this. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth. I carried you from your womb. Even to old age, I am he, and, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. And, I've, and I, I have made, and I will bear, and I, I will carry you, and I will save you. And I read that, and I thought, you know, the Lord will carry us until the day we die. If you're 32, he's going to carry you. If you're 70, he's going to carry you. If you're 80, he's going to carry you. He, that's the God who works in our life and has multiple glorious thoughts toward us. How do you have a willful spirit? Well, you think about, you think about the fact that God has glorious, loving plans for us. Jesus says, if you then, being evil parents, that's what, evil parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give gifts to those who ask him? It's an amazing statement. So I went to see my parents this week on the way home from Nashville. My dad's 96, my mom is 91. They're in an independent living facility. And I got there and said, I want to take you out to eat. We want to go eat. No, I don't care. So, um, Finally said, let's go to Cracker Barrel. I said, okay, Cracker Barrel it is. So we went to Cracker Barrel and uh, got in there. And it's, they, they can't hear very well. So you do a lot of shouting. You know what I'm talking about. And um, I'll tell you what, so we're checking out. I'm paying the bill. My dad's standing there with us. And he says to the cashier, to be honest, the cashier needed to work for Chick-fil-A for a while. She was not very friendly. I mean, she never said, it was, my, it was my pleasure. That wouldn't cross her mind. And so she was kind of snarling. Not snarling, but she, she just went for it. My dad goes, young lady. When you're 96, everybody's young lady who's a woman. You know what I mean? Young lady, do you have a toothpick? She says, we don't have toothpicks. You don't have toothpicks? No, we'll sell you some toothpicks. Sell me some toothpicks? And he, she says, yeah, here's a few toothpicks for $1.39. He says, okay, I'll buy them. This, this time he's getting a little bit grouchy. And he buys them. We get in the car, and Dad looks at him and says, I am through with Cracker Barrel. <laughs> I said, why? He said, no toothpicks. <laughs> okay, okay. So in the Michelin Guide for my dad, there's got to be a toothpick at the bottom of the page for these restaurants. But we're sitting in, we're sitting in Cracker Barrel. 
talking loudly. My mom's in a wheelchair. She can't get out of the wheelchair. She has no sense of balance to speak of. She was a very active woman. So it's hard for her. It's very hard for her. And she says to me, she says, you know, it is so hard to get old. I said, man, I know, Mama. It's got to be so hard. She said, it's so hard. She said, I can't hear. I can't walk. Um, I just sit around all day. It's just hard. I said, you know, Mama, I'm feeling more aches and pains now than I did two years ago. It's just part of it. I said, but, but, but you know what, Mom? I said, the best is about to come. When we get to heaven because of Jesus, these meals are going to be nothing compared to the banquet of heaven. And the beauty of creation, of Piedmont, North Carolina, you love so much, will be nothing compared to the glory of heaven. The best is yet to come. And that's all. You know, we could rejoice in that. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. So this book, it's a recent book, and you should read this book. This book is dynamite. I'm going to tell you the story. I'll close with this. It's called In Prison with Isis by a guy named Peter Jassik. Peter Jassik, I'm going to story pretty short. Peter Jasik was uh, raised in Czechoslovakia. His father was a pastor. His father was in prison for his faith. Peter Jasik came to faith as an older teen. Uh, he's now part of the Czech Republic, but he works for Voice of the Martyrs. It's a ministry out of Bartlesville, Oklahoma, that really documents how the church is being persecuted worldwide. And his, he lives in Prague, but his responsibility has been part of Africa, to go there and see how the people in Africa have been persecuted. So he's in the Sudan, which is next to Kenya. And Sudan, is, our government says, is a terrorist state. And there's a, there was a guy at that time named Bashir, the dictator of Sudan for 30 years, and Bashir wanted it an Islamic state, but he wanted it on his terms, and he really hated ISIS. So they're both terrorist groups, but his terrorist group, he wanted to have the ascendancy and not ISIS. And so if, if you were an ISIS person, he would imprison you. And so Peter Janik is there, and he, he's documenting, taking pictures, and interviewing pastors and church leaders that have been maimed and beaten and persecuted and lost an eye or a limb because of horrific treatment so that he can bring it back and ask our government to plead for religious freedom and here's, here's the documentation of what's going on and so we can plead for the church to pray. It's a very noble thing he's doing. So he's in Sudan, he's interviewed these guys, he's getting ready to fly back to Prague. Some military policemen come in and take him and say they're able to get into his computer, it's always encrypted, they got inside and saw these interviews and these pictures and they seized that and they took him to prison, put him in prison. And so he goes into this prison cell and there are seven men in this one cell that's really built by the British in the 1930s for two people. And they have to position their body to sleep at night and there's a, one toilet in there and there's very little running water and it's filthy and he gets in there and of course they see that he's a Czech person and, and they say, we haven't heard any news from the outside for months. And he said, can you tell us what's happened? He said, well, recently there was a situation in France where some jihadists have killed 130 people. And the guy, the only guy who spoke English said, repeat that, please. And so he turned and he communicated that to his fellow cellmates in Arabic. 
And there was a stunned moment of silence. And then they started jumping up and clapping and singing and saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, which means great, God is great. And he said, I realized that I was in a cell with six members of ISIS. And so at first they treated him okay, but then they started beating him. The fellow prisoners beat him. The guards would have to save him from being beaten. He lost 40 pounds. He, he was in charge of cleaning the toilet every day and washing their underwear every day when it was soiled. Horribly treated. Um, he went from prison to prison and situation to situation. It was it's an amazing story. He was, he was in prison for 445 days and he was released. But he writes this book, and it's really an incredible book. It's a quick read. I'm going to give you just three quick quotes. That I, just, I went, wow. So he says this. In prison, every day I prayed for strength to pass this great test, to endure the suffering and to prove myself worthy of the burden that God had graciously placed on my shoulders. It astounded me to think that God had decided to use me to share his amazing plan of salvation and to do his life-saving work in these prisons, work that he had prepared before the creation of this world. Even though my living conditions were getting worse and worse, and even though each new prison brought new challenges and tribulations, God was giving me small glimpses of his master plan and providential will in my darkest moments, Jesus continued to be my light and my life. I'm going, good, really? Really? He thought, he was thinking about the plans that God had for his life, for a future and the hope. It's amazing. He says this, my prayer in Allahu prison was, was proven to be emotionally and spiritually edifying for my time there. My family had sent me an MP3 player with audio recordings in both Czech and English of the Bible, and they sent me a French textbook. I listened to scripture late into the evening, long after the sun had set, and I no longer had enough light to read. And I also used the audio recordings to read, to teach English and French in our chapel room to those who did not know Jesus. This prison had a chapel. I was able to preach the gospel in that chapel. And then he said this. He said as I was in prison, I was no longer worried about how long I had to stay in prison. As long as the Lord wanted me to be there, I would be there, not one day more or one day less. I went, wow, wow. So how, how do you have a willing spirit? We remember the greatness of God. You recall foundational truths. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and does not turn to those who mock God or to those who believe lies. And, and then you have an internal dialogue where you say, oh God, you have given me multiple wonders in the past and you have multiple wonderful thoughts for me in the future. They're more than I can count. They're more than I can ever begin to, 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 to remember. Blessed be your name. That's how you have a willing spirit. Behold the greatness of our triune God. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we really need a willing spirit. We need to be sustained with a willing spirit. We need to be propped up with a heart that is battle ready to respond to the things of God. And we pray for that. We plead for that. We long for that. 
So do that in us, Holy Spirit, and, and really allow us to, to live out the rest of this psalm and just don't, don't let us hide this in our hearts, but let us speak it out. Let us speak it out to a, a friend or a neighbor or a relative who, who, who is unchurched or doesn't know the things of the Lord. Let us speak it out. So we just thank you for that. And we thank you for this day and for your tender mercies in our lives. We so thank you. Lord, really, I, I pray you'd release us from the grip of the forces of darkness. I pray we'd be aware of the insinuations and the beguiling speech of the devil. I pray you'd make us battle-ready people who walk with Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.